Well, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced deja vu? Raise your hand if you've experienced. I think it's a pretty common experience. And for those who don't know what it is, maybe you said deja what? Uh, a little explanation might go a long way. If you look it up on Wikipedia, which is what I did, um, they, they provide an explanation that deja vu is a French expression that actually means already seen. And it goes on to describe it as a phenomenon of, of an experience that you have already gone through something or experience going, uh, the, the experience that you're currently going through is helping you recall an experience that you already had. There, I said it effectively. <laughs> trying to get going here. It induces feelings of familiarity and the feeling of already having lived through something. So why am I asking you about deja vu? Well, just a couple of months ago, we studied a passage in Mark 6 that involved Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people. And if you were here for that message, you'll recall that that number 5,000 was actually closer to 20 or 25,000 because it was men that were being referred to. And so with women and children, it was a, a great number. Well, today in Mark chapter 8, Jesus will miraculously feed 4,000 men. And the accounts sound eerily similar. The feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 share more in common than any two accounts in the, uh, in the gospel of Mark. Their unmistakable similarities have even led a large number of modern scholars to believe that, falsely believe, that these accounts are actually one and the same. It's an identical account being talked about rather than being two separate historical events. Why did the Holy Spirit lead uh, John Mark and Matthew Levi to record such similar events in both of their gospel accounts? What differences does God want you and I to see in this account that we didn't see the last time? Let's tackle the text to find out. If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn to Mark 8, and I'm going to begin by reading the opening 10 verses, which is going to be our focus for today. Mark 10, verses 1 through, or Mark 8, verses 1 through 10 says, In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there. And he sent them away, and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Well, as your outline indicates, 
Our passage is going to provide three revealing ways to see how Jesus cares for his disciples and our need, right, to see the gospel and to trust completely in Christ and the gospel to provide for, for Gentiles. Much more is going to be said about this. And let's get started with the first way that you and I can see how Jesus cares for his followers, which is to do this, replay Christ's consistent compassion. Is the Lord Jesus Christ filled with compassion? Question for you, is he filled with compassion? If there has been one thing about our study through the gospel of Mark that has captured my heart, and I hope has captured yours as well, is that we see this as a consistent character of his life. He's he's moved with compassion. It, It flows out of the very being and the very person of Christ. His willingness to touch the untouchable. We've seen him touch all kinds of people, from those who, were, who have hemorrhages to those who have leprosy, even to the account that we saw last week as he willingly touched someone who, who was deaf and mute, who would have been considered defiled and dirty from a religious, pharisaical perspective. It is a consistent compassion, is it not? It is, and today we'll see the Lord's compassion captured by the hungry Gentile crowd. Notice how verses one and two emphasize that they have nothing to eat. It says, in those days when there was again a large crowd, they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. The word again is a the word again in that opening verse is a is a key for us to see. It's a distinguishing factor that Mark uses to indicate that this is another event, despite the similarities. And when I read that passage, didn't you kind of gain a sense like, haven't we already read this before in Mark six? You all, you you feel that way. It is in every way like deja vu. Just listen to the list of similarities that one pastor put together that might cause you to have deja vu. Both miracles involve huge crowds. Both miracles took place in a location where no food was available. In both miracles, Jesus used a small amount of bread and fish to feed a lot of people. In both miracles, Jesus involved the disciples. In both miracles, the disciples doubted. In both miracles, Jesus asked the disciples the same question. In both miracles, Jesus took what he had, thanked God for it, and broke it. In both miracles, the bread and fish multiplied in the hands of Jesus. In both miracles, the crowds were entirely satisfied. And in both miracles, a large amount of food was left over. All of these details are intriguing. But if there's one detail that we cannot miss, and that I want to draw your attention to, it's that this was a Gentile crowd, okay? We have to see this, and context is key to our understanding. As we learned previously, the Lord Jesus Christ has the disciples out on this incredibly long journey through Gentile regions. It started in Tyre, and then it went up north to Sidon, and then it moved down to the region of Decapolis, and we covered this last week. It was a journey that covered some 120 plus miles and would take several months to complete. We also learn that the Lord is in the process 
of discipling the 12, detoxing them really of the traditional pharisaical mindset that considered all Gentiles unclean and unworthy of the God of Israel. What better way to do this than to compassionately minister directly to them and perform an equally powerful miracle that Jesus performed earlier to a predominantly all-Jewish crowd in in a Jewish region. We need not speculate on the Lord's compassion because he voices it at the beginning of verse 2. But what we can speculate about is how much compassion do the disciples have at this point towards that Gentile crowd? Think about that for a moment. My guess is that they're still very much challenged. This was stretching them to minister to people outside of their comfort zones, which was the point of a principle of application that we talked about last week that still remains this week. Does race or social status limit who you share the gospel with and minister to? If so, how might the Lord challenge you and I to view souls and not social status when it comes to people's needs? Replaying the Lord's compassion helps us grow through this spiritually. It does as we, as we see his compassion to minister to all people. It has a, and should have a, a tremendous bearing on our hearts. And when, the, when Mark records Jesus' statement, I feel compassion, he's actually using a Greek verb that's derived from this noun that reflected entrails or, or vital organs, okay? And you're like, what? Yeah. See, when, when the priests would do the sacrifice, and uh, they, they would actually eat the, the, the vital organs, right, as, as a part of the, of the custom. It included the heart, the kidneys, the liver, okay? Every, I think we all know what the, most of us, in, especially this church with all the medical staff, what, what the vital organs are, right? Well, as a, con- a consequence of this practice, the Greek word that Mark uses here took on metaphorical meaning of being deeply moved within, in the seat of emotions, And this is Jesus expressing gut-wrenching emotion on behalf of the Gentile crowd. Why? He he felt their physical hunger. Three days, minimal food, right? It was growing, growing. I mean, I miss a meal, and you guys don't even want to see what happens to me sometimes when I get hungry. Victoria will testify, I am most irritable when I am hungry, I get to this place. Did anyone else get to that place where your hunger pains? You're just, I, I got to eat or somebody's getting hurt. I mean, really, it's just like, I, 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 I'm hurting. I'm hurting. Verse 2 shares that, that, that Jesus was sensitive to this fact with the crowd. But even beyond that, he also sensed their spiritual hunger pains, that they were living lives without any hope. He could sense that. And verse 2 shares that Jesus had been teaching them for three days, unlike the single day of teaching in the first miraculous feeding. One pastor jokingly added, it's hard to get people to stay with you past 12 p.m. on Sundays due to hunger pains, much less three days. So, um, and I thought you guys would think that was funny, but apparently not. 
Like, uh, keep it. That's my diabetic CGM beep in there. You got to keep it, keep it on time, okay, Pastor John? We got lunch plans. Well, it makes sense that the Lord spent three days teaching this Gentile crowd because if you think about it, they wouldn't have had the same foundation that an Israelite would have had. They're coming, and many of them would be coming from nowhere from, from a biblical standpoint. No idea. So Jesus spends this additional time. And when we read this account, it's very easy for us just to gloss over that, that three days, isn't it? Like to, to, to think lightly of it. But what a mercy this is to the Lord Jesus Christ to show up and to teach the crowd and to let them know that can, they can have hope and that their hope can actually be found in the, the Jewish Messiah as he pointed people to himself. This was radical, absolutely radical for them to, to hear. We, we think about it being radical from a Jewish standpoint as they think about the inclusion of the Gentiles. This was every bit as radical for the Gentile who was being pointed to the Jewish rabbi explaining about the Messiah and that he was the Messiah. Radical, radical for them. And so the time comes when the teaching is finished a three-day conference is all summed up to some degree. It's all, it's all over. It's time for them to head home. And they're incredibly hungry. In verse 3, and this leads us to his compassion fueled his concern for them. The second sub-point under our first point. He says in verse 3, If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. Christ's compassion led him to take action. And I've shared this before when we've talked about compassion. Now when we exercise it, it's helpful to break it into two words. Come or to take action and passion or come with a desire to help a situation. When Jesus exercised his compassion, what he did was he took action. He came to see if there was a way that he could help with a desire, help with a need. And this is woven deeply into the servant theme of the gospel of Mark. I also don't think that it's coincidental that when the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 to describe the new man in Christ, that one of the very first things that is mentioned is compassion. Colossians 3.12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Other translations use the, uh, clothe yourself with compassion. It's, it's, it's to, to be, you know, I, I think we all gain the sense of, 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 of the, the fright that would come if we didn't have our clothes on, all right? And, and, and the shame, right? We would cover ourselves, right? That's, that's the natural response. Well, if you think about it, that we're being called to clothe ourselves with compassion, that if as a believer, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who compassion just absolutely, utterly flowed out of, think about it, if we if we're not clothed, if that isn't a testimony of our life, right? Are we, are we not missing it? Are we not missing it? If you want to gauge where you're at spiritually in terms of spiritual maturity or your pursuit of Christ-likeness, 
Compassion is a great place to start. And this was incredibly humbling for me as I reflected upon this in my study this week. Do I respond compassionately in my interactions with others? Am I compassionate to my wife? Do I respond compassionately to my kids, with my friends, with my coworkers, my fellow elders, with strangers? Or do I respond compulsively? Do I lack consideration of others? I want you to do something, give you a little homework assignment. I want you to ask someone close to you, and for those of us who are married, your, your spouse is about the, the, the closest we get, right? We're one in Christ with them. I want you to ask them how compassionate and considerate you are of others. And, and for them to be honest, open yourself up. Bless yourself. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the, ki- the, the kisses of the enemy. You know, somebody can tell you what you want to hear. Oh, you're compassionate. Oh, yeah, you're compassionate. But ask somebody. Truly, I want to know where my, my growth in Christ. I want to know how I need to grow. Ask them where you're at. Replay Christ's consistent compassion in your mind. And ask the Lord to show you ways that you can grow. I was truly humbled to see how much I need to grow in my pursuit of Christ, yet I was greatly encouraged that the Lord Jesus Christ does what? He reveals his passion time and time again as he does in this study. I need to look to Christ. I need to replay his consistent compassion in my mind if I truly desire to be more and more like him. Can I get an amen? Amen. We do. And by the way, this is a defining characteristic of the Lord painted all over the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New. The Lord's compassion leads us to have compassion on others. And I wanted to give you just a couple passages to hang your hat on so you could see this. The first one is in 1 Kings 8.50. And this is Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. So this verse is his prayer. And I want you to listen to this. It's profound. Solomon prays, forgive your people who have sinned. And this is God guiding the recording of what was being said. For give your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. Did you just track with that? That the prayer God's compassion and making them objects of compassion, that they would impact them in such a way that even the nation of Israel, who was held captive by pagans, that that would be fuel to serve, that they would have compassion on those people. Profound. Replaying the Lord's compassion served as Israel's fuel. It was supposed to, anyway. In the New Testament, again, in Colossians 3.12, it says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. We've seen that. We've talked about it. Then in the very next verse, verse 13, it says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so 
also should you. Christ's compassion to us through the gospel serves as fuel for our compassion as New Testament believers. And so that's another reason why we want to replay it in our mind. He was filled with compassion. This is the first revealing way to see that Jesus cares for his followers and our need to trust completely in Christ and the gospel to provide for us, us Gentiles. Well, the second is this. Remember Christ's formal faithfulness. And here we're going to take a look at the disciples' forgetfulness and then the Lord's faithfulness. First, the disciples' forgetfulness. Look at verse 4. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Again, the setting for both of the feedings is in a remote location. They're out far. There isn't access to Super Walmart, Costco. There isn't access even to, from, from what we've gathered to, even to street vendors and different vendors that they could go to that could feed such a large crowd. What could they possibly do? Well, love believes the best about people, does it not? During my study, I really tried hard to step into the shoes of the disciples to think about like what was going on in their mind. Why did they ask this question? Surely they can't be this slow. I was thinking that, not in a prideful way at all. I was just thinking that was a powerful miracle. There's no way that they can be this forgetful. Commentators are unsettled as to why they would ask Jesus this question after seeing him perform the unforgettable miracle in Mark 6. And so since we can't really know with certainty, I wanted to at least take a stab at it for you, okay? And I want to uh, have us focus on the end of verse 4, where I believe the end uh, of the verse provides the answers when the disciples refer to the Gentile crowd as these people, And this is an accusative pronoun in the Greek that isn't used in Mark 6 in the first feeding. These people. In Mark 6, they witnessed Jesus' shepherd teach and perform a massive miracle to what was a predominantly Jewish crowd. It may have been all Jewish for, for, for all we know. And the passage indicates this when Jesus referred to them like sheep without a shepherd, which was a reference reserved for Israelites. Later, we see the 12 baskets of leftovers that reflected the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, all Jews. And the reason I believe the disciples asked this question isn't because they forgot the previous miracle. And you may even be asking me, well, Pastor John, doesn't your subpoint right here say the disciples' forgetfulness? Allow me to explain. I don't think that they forgot the previous miracle. And I don't think that they've forgotten Jesus' capacity to provide. What I think that they've forgotten and what they're blind to is all the ministry that's taken place to Gentiles along the way. I think they've missed it. They haven't seen God's bigger plan of redemption. They haven't seen it. And they've forgotten, wow, he's been ministering to all these Gentiles. 
And so now when it comes to Jesus performing this same grand miracle to a Gentile crowd, they're uncertain as to what he's going to do. And so when they question him, they're not doubting his ability to perform the miracle. But in a bigger picture, they are still reconciling in their minds. Mind, these are Gentiles. Is, is he going to do? So they, they ask the same question. And Jesus is going to help answer this question more fully in due time when the gospel is fulfilled with a complete picture. And the Apostle Paul, of course, we know expands on this mystery that comes at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 and the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 that we, we read in the account of the Syrophoenician woman, or at least a portion of that, right? That the, the dividing wall, the barrier was broken down between Jew and Gentile. What the disciples needed to do here was remember Christ's formal faith, former faithfulness. And I love the way that the Lord Jesus chooses to put it on display. Look at verse 5, which is connected to our second subpoint under our second point in your outline. Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. I want to help you see something. And I'm absolutely confident. I hope you be confident with me. That as soon as Jesus asked how many loaves that you had, they knew. They knew what he was going to do. Right? And they responded that they have seven. Uh, uh, they have seven loaves. And we'll talk about the significance of that a, a little bit. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, come on, dummies. Don't you have a clue? McFly, anyone home? Come on. Right? I think there's even a principle that we can draw upon just as if, you, if, if you're married to someone who is forgetful or you have a friend who's forgetful, right? That it really helps and blesses them when you respond in a spirit of grace, doesn't it? And the Lord Jesus Christ does that. That's what he does right here. And he asks them, how many loaves do you have? And he graciously uses what they already know to be true about his formal faithfulness and indicates to them that he's also going to serve these Gentiles in the same manner. This was radical for his disciples. And it goes without saying that they shouldn't trust in themselves, right? They shouldn't be trusting in themselves. And we even see, I think, a little bit of progress because in the last account, in the first feeding, they were talking about all the money that it was going to take. At least they're not doing that in this account. Like, geez, I wonder how much money it's going to take to feed all of these people, right? They understood, and they knew this time around, they needed to trust completely in the provision of Christ, which connects us to our third and final point. Respond to Christ's profound providence. And here we arrive at what I believe is the heart of the passage as Jesus puts his providence on display. Now, providence is a word that gets thrown around a lot in Christian circles, you know, it's part of the Christianese language. You know, yeah, in, in God's providence, he provided me with a wife. And in God's providence, he... You know, um, I, I want to make sure that we understand what is meant. Some, some have reduced this to mean providence means that God provides for his people. And that is a true statement, as he does. But as we're going to see, providence involves so much more. And if we just say that God provides for his people, that really is an oversimplification. And providence is actually 
a big biblical doctrine that has multiple aspects. And so it's going to be good for us to consider a full definition before continuing. And just listen to how F.F. Bruce defines it. And to, and to follow along, I actually put this on po- a PowerPoint so you could see that. And I know your response, you're like, whoa, that's a whole lot of words. But I wanted to have you see the scripture reference so that you could really appreciate what we're talking about here when we're talking about providence. And no, we're not talking about the capital of Rhode Island. Okay, for all the geographers. Okay, Um, here we go. Providence, the continuous activity of God in his creation by which he preserves and governs. The doctrine of providence affirms God's absolute lordship over his creation and confirms the dependence of all creation on the creator. It is the denial of the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. Through his providence, God controls the universe, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human birth and destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. We are not free to choose and act independently of God's will and plan. We choose and act in accordance with them. In his sovereignty, God controls people's choices and actions. God's actions, however, do not violate the reality of human choice or negate our responsibility as moral beings. God permits sinful acts to occur, but he does not cause us to sin. He often overrules evil for good. Without his continual care and activity, the world would not exist, end quote. And all God's people said, amen. We see that. I mean, that is, that, that, that is clear. And so do you see how if we just say that God provides for his people, that we, we don't really do our, our own understanding justice, right? We, need, we, we don't do the, the doctrine itself justice. There's a much bigger picture here that's actually even connected to other subsets of doctrine. Subsets of doctrine like uh, preservation, the doctrine of concurrence, the doctrine of God's governance, sovereignty. Those are all uh, subsets that fall underneath the umbrella of providence. For practical purposes today and to cover this passage effectively, I want us to consider providence from three different angles that our passage provides. And you can see these in the sub points under our third point. They indicate that we'll see that his providence serves, his providence satisfies, and his providence continues. First, his providence serves. As we read verses six and seven, notice how providence serves the people. You can even see that word throughout. Verse 6, and he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them and they served them to the people. And they also had a few small fish and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. The first way that his providence serves them is with directions at the beginning of verse 6. In both miraculous feedings, according to what the Lord prescribed in his organization of the miracle, he provides instructions so that the people can all sit down. Remember, you have thousands of people around. He has them all sit. And the Lord Jesus Christ remains standing. And he wants people to see where the source 
is coming from, who the source of the miracle is, so that all eyes could be on him. He is the one who is going to feed everyone. Is he the source from which you get fed? Is he the primary source from from where you get fed? He is. We know from his grace and from providence that the the physical food comes from him. But I'm talking about your spiritual food. Is he a primary source for you to be fed? Not just on Sundays, but daily. Does your understanding of providence help you to see that everything that's in your life has come from his hand? And it's easy to lose sight of this, and we all need reminders The second way that his providence serves them is with prayer. And after they were seated, notice what Jesus does in the middle of verse 6. In taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them. Like the deaf, mute man last week, the Lord Jesus Christ looked upward so the man could see where the the, the source, the, the nature and the power of what was going to be done, where it was coming from, right? And he's doing the same as he stops and he gives thanks in the presence of of the crowd so that they can also know the source. And this providence led him to pray and give thanks. Do you want to know one of the best ways to witness to someone? Ask them if you can pray for them. And I'm not talking about ask them if you can pray for them later on in the week or later on in, in the day if you can, as if you need their permission to do that. I'm asking, and, and, can, what about the opportunity to ask somebody to pray for an unbeliever with them in that moment? Why? Because you can point them to the providence of God. You can help them to see God's providence when you pray and share all the blessings that God has provided for them in their life that they have refused to acknowledge to God. It is an incredible way to point them, to point the lost, to see the things and the blessings and the gracious, loving hand of God's providence. The third way that his providence serves them is with servants. It says, and he started giving the loaves to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the people. God's providence provides servants to accomplish his purposes. And I want you to think about this for a moment because this blew me away. You ready? Buckle your seatbelt, put your crash helmet on because this is a jaw dropper. I want you to think back. And if you were to recall every single time that one of God's servants served you, what would that number be? That God provided a servant to serve you. Think about that. That's unreal to think about. As we look back and we think about how many times somebody got a door for us, how many times somebody handed a bulletin for us, somebody t- how many times somebody picked us up from somewhere, how many times somebody gave us a shoulder that we could cry on when we just broke up in a relationship, how many times God provided this person to do that and this person to do that and this person to do that. It's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. 
And those will just be the situations that you can recall. What about all the times that the Lord has provided and all the situations that you're completely unaware of? All the times that somebody prayed for you and you didn't know it. All the times that somebody alleviated a burden and rather than trouble you with it, they provided for you. And they did something because the Lord led them to do it. It's radical, is it? Is it not? It is absolutely powerful. And all of it flows out of the heart of God's profound providence. Well, there's a fourth way that his providence serves them, and that is with food. Not only did they get to eat as many fresh and miraculously handmade loaves, right? But according to verse 7, it says that he also blessed and gave thanks for fish and also provided fish for them. So they had this endless supply, and we talked about in the previous account that when the Lord made stuff, when he performed miracles, it was the best we referenced the wedding at Cana, right? When he turned the water into wine. And they said, people normally bring out their worst wine at the end, but you have brought out the very best. And so as they're eating this bread, as they're eating this fish, it is nothing like they've had before. It is tasty stuff. You get what I'm saying? And so... I wanted to think of an illustration that you could connect this. If you were hungry over the course of three days, then if all of a sudden that you got to go to your favorite restaurant and you were able to sit down and they brought you an endless supply of whatever your favorite, favorite meal was, you would be pretty encouraged. That would be a great blessing. This couldn't possibly get any better. Or could it? Or could it? When we respond to Christ's profound providence, we see how it serves, but let us also see how his providence satisfies. Look at the beginning of verse eight. And they ate and were satisfied. This Greek word translated satisfied literally means to be filled with satisfaction. They had a great time of feasting on an endless supply of the best bread and fish that they had ever eaten. But if we, only, if, we, if we fully understand God's providence here, the greater feast had already occurred. The greater feast had already taken place. They had a spiritual feast on the word of God from Jesus for three days, full days, that were with, as, as he taught them, as he instructed them, as he pointed them to the, to, to the Jewish Messiah, pointing people to himself. He could be the one that they could have hope in. He is the one who can save Gentiles if they would place their faith in him. And really, if we think about it, is it not the ultimate expression of how his providence satisfies? The very, the very thing that God has pressed upon the heart that the soul longs for and to know God to know salvation, to know him. That is satisfaction. And it's the heartbeat of this passage. It is the spiritual feast that flows out of the gospel and the bread of life that flows out of his words. 
And Jesus expressed it this way after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6.35 when he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. His providence satisfies to the utmost spiritually. And the physical picture of the feeding and even the leftovers symbolizes this reality. Look at the middle of verse 8. And verse 9, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Let me explain that the, the Jewish understanding, according to tradition, the number seven was a number of completion or fullness. And they saw even biblical expressions and examples of this as God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And even according to his design, that a full and complete week was seven days. They understood this. We see examples of this, like when uh, Peter came to uh, the Lord in Matthew 18, and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And what's he say? How many times? Seven times? Why did he pick the number seven? Because he, from his standpoint and what they understood as Jews, that was a number of fullness. That was a number of completion. And the seven loaves and the seven baskets of leftovers are symbolic to the fullness of Gentiles in the second miraculous feeding. In the same way that the 12 baskets symbolize the feeding of the 12 tribes of Israel in the first miraculous feeding. And this is fascinating. Isn't that fascinating to think about? Just even how God, just how profound, it's absolutely, as we respond to his providence, how the details, every single detail is accounted for. James Edwards writes, from the church fathers onward, the church has rightly perceived that in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus brings saving bread to the Gentiles as he brought it earlier to the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I need you to track with me here. The difference between the Jews' response to the Gentiles and Jesus' response can be seen in Mark's concluding phrase. Okay, last verse, last part of verse 10. And Jesus, or, or first part of the verse, and Jesus sent them away. Okay, I want to talk to you about, this is what he says about that Greek word for send away. It can either mean to dismiss or get rid of or to release or liberate, okay? The first is the Jewish response to dismiss or get rid of. The second is Jesus's response who satisfies the hungry hungry outcasts and liberates them, end quote. Powerful, even to the word that's described that could even reflect the situation and the reality of what we've talked about and the pharisaical view and mindset that they just get rid of the Gentiles, right? They're not worthy of our God. They're not. And what does Jesus do? He points them to himself. He would spend three days instructing them, pointing them to himself so that they could be liberated, that they could know his forgiveness, that they could have lives that counted for his purpose and for his glory. What a beautiful picture of how his providence satisfies spiritually. Amen? Amen. Have you turned to Christ? 
Are you someone here today? And I have to ask this question. Are you someone here today that has only tasted physical bread your whole life? You've only tasted physical bread, but you've never tasted the spiritual life-giving bread of the gospel. The complete satisfaction of God's providence. Have you fell completely on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him and nothing else for your salvation? Have you made him the Lord of your life and exalted him to the supreme position in your life to have all authority and dominion over your life and that you're willing to follow his plan and his purpose for your life? He's waiting for you. He's waiting for you with open arms to come and embrace him and be enveloped in the love of his providence and what he has done. Let today be the day of your salvation. His providence serves, his providence satisfies, and very quickly, certainly last but not least, his providence continues. Look at the final verse, verse 10. And immediately he entered the boat with the disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. If there's one thing about God's providence, it never ceases. Jesus immediately leaves for another region to put God's providence on display, providing direction, teaching, feeding, serving, praying for others, both Jews and Gentiles. If you have grasped the hand of his providence, you know he will always provide. And his word, and we have a great hymn that reminds us of that reality. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Unto me. I asked you at the beginning of the service if you've ever experienced deja vu. And depending on the memory that you would recall, that could be either a good experience or a bad experience, right? But I think most of us would say that if you experience deja vu with a good thing, that, that, that's a blessing. I hope you and I have deja vu this week when we replay Christ's consistent compassion. I hope that you and I have deja vu this week when we remember his formal faithfulness in our lives. And I hope you and I have deja vu this week when we respond to Christ's profound providence in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads, thanking you for the tremendous privilege that you've given us to rally around your word yet again. And our hearts are overwhelmed. We're greatly encouraged. And Father, I, I pray for my own heart first and just even how much I need to grow in compassion and how much I lack it at times. Thank you for your long suffering and your patience with me. And I know that that long suffering and patience is with every believer and every person in this church that has trusted in you. I pray, Father, that you would continue to allow us to not lose sight of the benchmark of compassion in our lives that that's going to fuel the impact that we have on other people, our kindness, our humility, our prayerfulness, our service. 
Compassion drives it all. And it drove the heart of your son. And we celebrate him. Thank you, Father, for just allowing us to see this with greater clarity. And I pray that we would have deja vu this week, that we would be replaying it. And that when we're lacking compassion, that we would own and confess our sin to whoever we sin against. And that when we do put compassion on display, that we would be able to praise you for it because we know that is fuel coming from you and through you. We thank you again for the way that you're blessing us as a church family. We give you thanks and praise in the matchless name of your son. Amen.